Well, please do keep your Bibles open. Turn back to uh, Exodus chapter 17. We're continuing our series there. We've only got a couple more weeks. Uh, we're going to finish at the foot of Mount Sinai in a couple of weeks' time, God willing. You're in that dark place again. You can't believe it. You've been here before. Life feels hard and bleak. This problem that you've faced more than once just keeps coming back to get you. And it's too big to handle. It always seems to defeat you. You could handle a lot, but not this thing. You feel like giving up. You're just so unhappy. You feel it shouldn't be like this. You get angry. You find someone to blame. You may blame your friends or your boss. You may blame your spouse or a church leader, but you will find someone to blame. And as for God, where is he when things get bad? He seems so distant and cold. You wonder if he even exists sometimes. He certainly doesn't seem to have this situation under control. Does he care? Now, if you know what I'm talking about, if you've ever felt those kind of things, then you're really in the right place this morning. Because God's word addresses these very questions of the heart in the book of Exodus. Now, some of you may be experiencing a slight feeling of deja vu today. Hang on a minute. Israelites in the wilderness, running out of water, complaining, God providing. Didn't we hear about this last week? Well, yes. And then again, no. It is true that last week we looked at two crises in the wilderness. The first one was thirst and the second was food. The Israelites number tens of thousands of people in a number of tribes and they're all trekking through this sparse, inhospitable, bleak desert area to Mount Sinai. And after three days they started to run out of water. But God intervened miraculously and changed bitter, undrinkable water to sweet water. And then they got close to running out of food. But God again provided miraculously quail, birds, which they could eat for meat, and something called manna, which means, what is it? Because no one had ever seen anything like it before. Some kind of sweet flakes that could be made into bread. Poetically, it's called bread from heaven. But here we are again. Chapter 17, verse 1. There was no water for the people to drink. What is going on? Now, if it seems repetitive to you, Imagine what it felt like for them. Oh, Lord, why have you brought us to this place again? Haven't we learned our lesson yet? Notice from verse 1 who it is that's led them to this place. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place, as the Lord commanded. Now, there's an interesting phrase. What that must mean is that God himself has deliberately and intentionally guided them to a place where there is no water. It's not an accident. Why? It's a challenge to trust him. And it's a challenge that the people immediately fail. They hear the children crying. They see the flocks and the herds gasping. They get, just like in those Western films, you know, they drain that last drop of water out of the hip flask. They look across the parched, sandy desert, and their hearts are filled with fear and panic and something else too, anger. So they immediately turn on Moses. Now, there's not much space between verse 1 and verse 2. Verse 1, there's no water for them to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Now, this word quarreling here is an interesting word in the Hebrew language. 
it implies, to our mind, the, the idea of a quarrel implies there was an argument that had a bit of a Barney. But actually, this is more legal language. It's used of lawsuits. So actually, what's really going on here is they are bringing charges against Moses. They are saying, we have assessed your leadership in this situation and have found you wanting. They hold him responsible for their misery. They want him to feel their pain. In fact, Moses says, they're almost ready to stone me. Now, in the ancient world, stoning is, is what you do to someone who has harmed a whole community. It's a terrible way to die, isn't it? Stoned to death. That's, they're getting that close. They ain't happy. They need someone to blame, and Moses is the perfect candidate. It's almost like he's drawn a big bullseye on his tunic and said, shoot me down. After all, he led them out to this blooming wilderness, didn't he? Under God. Now, you might be thinking, well, that reaction's a bit short-sighted. Remember the first 16 chapters of Exodus. But thirst and fear and hardship have a way of affecting your memory. And on this occasion, you know, Moses doesn't come out looking too good either. In verse 4, he shouts out in a way that looks like he isn't too confident. He says, uh, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. He sounds like he's at his wit's end. Probably is. He's carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. Where is his faith now? This whole episode is an escalation. Now, we've already seen them thirsting and crying out. We've already seen God providing. But here, it's kind of going up a level because they should know by now that God can provide. They've already experienced God's presence with them. So why say these words in verse 7? Is the Lord among us or not? Is God really there? Is he with us? Now, the answer is that they are overlooking the obvious. They are disparaging what God has already done. They're basically saying, I didn't sign up for this. And that's another way of saying, God, your provision for my life at this moment just isn't good enough. I deserve better. God, don't you realize that this shouldn't be happening to me? Just what do you think you're doing? You know what? God, you could have done a better job of looking after me which is tantamount to saying, you may be God, but at the moment you're not doing a very good job. Listen to me, and I'll give you some advice on how to run the universe. Now this episode that we read is so important that it actually gets on the map, because at the end, Moses names the place where it happened, Massah and Meribah. Massah means testing or trial, and Meribah means quarreling or strife or contention. Every time they looked at the map, they would remember this episode. It was so famous that hundreds of years later, people even wrote poetry about it. Psalm 95 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness. And then even later, some 1,600 years later, the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, picks up this very story, and we read that passage too. Why is this the parade example of unfaithfulness? Because they should have known better by now. They should have known better by now. They really do have enough to go on. They have enough evidence to trust God for the next drink of water. They have enough experience of God to know that he's got it under control. This story is so close to what just happened in chapter 16 that it shows how ridiculous people are and how short-sighted. And you know what? You and I, we would have done much better in that situation, wouldn't we? 
I mean, you would not have complained like they did, would you? I mean, you have never faced a problem twice and concluded that God has abandoned you, have you? No. Oh dear. It seems like we are more like the Israelites than we care to admit. In fact, their response is absolutely typical of human nature. The Bible knows how we're made, and it says that these things were written down for our benefit. I think there are three things we need to learn from this episode if we're going to live lives that are gloriously different to our nature and to these Israelites. Three things that we can learn to to live a glorious life. Firstly, know yourself. Secondly, know each other. And thirdly, know the Lord. Know yourself. First thing we need to learn to do is to learn to know ourselves. This is the first step on the road to recovery. You've probably heard of Alcoholics Anonymous, a famous and very successful program for dealing with alcoholism. There are 12 steps in the Alcoholics Anonymous program. This is the first one. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives have become unmanageable. And if a person can say that and know themselves, then they've made the first step on the road to recovery. We need to know ourselves because trouble will come. The book of Job famously says, Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Life's pathway is strewn with difficulties, isn't it? You rarely turn the corner and find that there's a plain road ahead. Life is rarely plain sailing. As soon as you get into some tranquil waters, there's another storm coming. And the difficulties we face are as diverse and varied as the people in this room. Some of you struggle with your weight. You just hate your body but you can't get the pounds off. Others uh, have such a terrible body image, you despise yourself and even dread looking in the mirror. Some are fed up of being single. It's going on for much longer than you thought was going to be the case. Some are wrestling with the, 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 the struggles of a broken heart. Or the opposite problem, the problem of being married. Maybe you got married and discovered that marriage wasn't a bed of roses. Actually, a bed of roses would be fairly uncomfortable, wouldn't it? Maybe it is a bed of roses. There was a book on marriage published a few years ago called I Married You. Now that title could be pronounced more than one way, couldn't it? I Married You? Another book was published called What Did You Expect? You discover that this person who you love is a constant source of frustration. Then there's the challenges of health. Your body just seems to let you down all the time and you try all sorts of things and you're in Going for treatment and you just can't seem to do anything about it. Or the difficulties of a child who is long-term sick. You seem to cope with it and then every so often you just fall apart. The challenges of not being able to have children and all the long wilderness road of that experience. The challenges of boredom, stress at the workplace or being bullied. The challenges of not being able to find work. Or your biggest struggles maybe are just with yourself. You carry around this heaviness. You've got this darkness inside. Your spirit is heavy. You don't even know why sometimes. Now, the clear truth of the Bible is rather radical. It's this. God led you here for a reason. It's not that God woke up one day and discovered that you were suffering and he dropped the ball. Oops, I'm so sorry. Your life was meant to be perfect and trouble-free. I just forgot about you and you drifted off the grid. Let me sort it out. No. The reality is that God led you here for a reason. 
And that can sometimes look a lot stranger and a lot darker than we expect. A few weeks ago, a friend wrote to me, discovered that the baby his wife uh, was carrying in her womb had died in the womb at five months. She was stillborn. They held her, named her, and buried her. He wrote these words. It's been a hard, sad time, but God has been good, as he always is. If he didn't spare his own son, how can we doubt his goodness even for a second? He will make all things new. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. I wrote to him. uh, I didn't even know what to say. What do you say to people? I said, it's a strange and a dark providence. And he replied, dark and strange indeed. But he knows better and sees further than any of us. God led Israel to a dry desert land as an opportunity to trust him. He leads you to this place in your life as an opportunity to trust him. And like Israel, you have got enough to go on, friends. You really do, if you've been a Christian for any time at all, you've got enough to go on to trust him for the next drink of water. But here's the thing. You've got to know yourself and realize that we're spiritually, we're so twisted and messed up by nature that we don't default to trust, we default to doubt. We don't default to joy. We default to protest. We don't default to patience. We default to blame and anger. And we've all developed strategies through our lives to deal with hardship. Escape exits, you know, uh, pressure valves. The Bible talks, of, there are two ways of living. There's walking in the spirit by God's Holy Spirit. And then there's walking in the flesh, in the flesh. That means there's an old way of life that you developed before you knew Christ, and that way is called the flesh. It's, it's the way of living in this world without God. And you know what? We all have characteristic patterns of living in the flesh. Do you know yourself? Some handle pressure with too much alcohol. Some handle pressure by spreading misery through complaining, moaning, and grumbling. If they can dis- dissipate it widely enough to other people, maybe they'll feel better about life. We usually find someone to blame. My dad was a pastor for 45 years. He said to me more than once, 45 years in pastoral ministry has led me to conclude that some people are the equivalent of a black hole. They can absorb, you know, a black hole can just suck anything into it, can't it? It can suck in like whole planets and things and spaceships. I've seen Star Trek. Some people can just suck in all the resources and support that's out there. And at the end, when everybody around them is exhausted, they say, this church isn't very loving, and move on to If I see you on Sunday morning, and you all look great, and you're in your finery, and you're smiling away, I don't know what's going on in your heart and life and mind. Does anybody? We will only be able to see to this if we know each other. Verse 13 continues, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. How long, according to the Bible, can we trust ourselves to live on God's grace? Less than one day. Encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today. We need encouragement every single day or we may be hardened by sin 
and give in to unbelief. We don't have more than 24 hours. And the end result of hardening our heart and giving in to unbelief could be verse 19. So we see that they were not able to enter the promised land because of their unbelief. These people in the wilderness who'd been rescued from Egypt, you know what happened? Most of them, their bodies fell and they were buried in graves in the wilderness. They never even went to the promised land because of their unbelief. See how high the stakes are? In wartime, everybody has to pull together. We had a day out as a family last week to a national trust property called Dunham Massey. It's a great place. Dunham Massey has been having a, uh, a kind of exhibition based on uh, Remembrance Sunday. And they had loads of Second World War posters that they've found, these old wartime posters that they put up all around the grounds. These are fascinating things. One of them said something like this. Dressing extravagantly will help the enemy. Because people who weren't cutting back and helping the war effort were actually actively aiding the opposition. Stick together. Volunteer. Get stuck in. People gave up their houses during the wartime. Everybody had to pitch in and stand together and work together. We know what it's the same for us on the Christian journey. And that's why we keep banging on about community groups at this church. Not because we read a book and thought it was a good idea, but because we need to encourage one another daily. We're not talking about sign up for another meeting. We want one more evening in your diary. We're talking about sharing our lives with each other. Encourage one another daily. We've got to know each other. Now, I know that your work situation or your family situation might mean that you can't literally meet somebody else every day. But you should make it the highest priority that there are Christian people in your life who really know you and that you are in their lives. And when you meet, don't just do small talk. Help each other on the journey. Let some people in so they really know you. You know, we might be very busy, but we have a wealth of communication options. There's one man in this church, James Smith, who sends a text out. I don't know how many people he texts. It's wonderful. I look forward to James's text every day. He shares what he's been reading in the Bible that day. Always encourages me. He's encouraging his text group. wonder how many people are on it. Daily. Some of our community groups now that have got really big are now subdividing into life groups of about 10 or 12 people. You know, studies have shown that armies often favor the unit of 10 or 12 because it's so powerful and effective, a small unit that know each other and work together on a common mission. Even the Lord Jesus Christ had a unit of 12, and within that, three people he was very close to. So I want to challenge us today to know each other, to let people in, to make yourself accountable, to commit to loving each other well. You've got to know yourself. We've got to know each other. And when we meet to encourage one another, what are we going to say? Cheer up, old boy. Look on the bright side. It could be a lot worse, you know. Stiff up a lip. Another cup of tea? Those are the things that British people say. Here's what the Heidelberg Catechism says. This was published in 1563. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins 
and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me, that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. What is your only comfort in life and death? We will be true friends, true brothers and sisters, if when we meet each other in the wilderness, we help each other to know the Lord. And we'll only do that if we know each other. Know the Lord. This is my third and final point. Let's turn back to uh, Exodus chapter 17, page 75. We've thought about the people, thought about Moses, but what about the Lord? What is his response to this violent, ugly, and ungrateful protest rally? His response is to give water from a rock. Verse 5. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. Now these people have seen this this rod, this staff before. It was used by Moses during the, the rescue from Egypt. It was used to strike the Nile, which turned to blood. It was used to, uh, he, he prayed and held it up, and the waters parted. And you remember that the waters came crashing back down. Sorry if I've just spoiled the end of the film for you. It's coming out on Boxing Day. But this time, this rod is not going to be used in judgment, but in a gracious provision. Go, God says, I will stand before you. Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. That's where God promised to meet them, and he does. He meets them in a way that was quite unexpected. Strike a rock. Water comes out. Not just a little bit of a dribble. Streams, enough to satisfy thousands of people and flocks of herds. This is a a creation miracle. Only the creator could do something like this. But why a rock? Why doesn't God just lead the Israelites around the corner to a place where there's some water? Why does he have to do it the hard way? Why go for the impossible? Surely it's to show his care and provision. He transformed something that was hard and dry into a life-giving stream. It's so that he gets the glory and they will learn to trust him. Now what about you? The New Testament says that they drank from a spiritual rock and the rock was Christ. This is a non-literal way of saying that Jesus provided water from that rock. Who stood before the rock that day? God stood before them in a visible form. Now, before his incarnation as a baby, the Lord Jesus Christ has always and forever been the second person of the Godhead. He's always been by his Father's side. And God's presence with his people in a form often seems to be the Son of God come to earth, even before he became a baby. Christ gave the water from the rock. But you know, there's more. Because Jesus Christ also spent 40 days in the wilderness, fasting. He faced intense temptation at this weakest point. The full power and deviousness of Satan was concentrated on him. He was tempted and tested. And Jesus' response was to quote scripture. 
you shall not test the Lord your God. He refused to test God, as the Israelites did. He refused to test God where we would have. He therefore passed the test that Israel failed. And now he achieves all that Israel was meant to achieve, filling the world with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea and blessing every family on earth. But you know, there's even more than that. Because Jesus Christ's victory in the wilderness was not his greatest hour. It wasn't his darkest hour either. There was a time to come where, of all people, he could have felt the most abandoned. Where he, of all people, could have protested, Is the Lord here? He did cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried out in pain, but not in protest. You see, he was struck. Like the rock, he was struck, but he was struck at the cross, where it was, according to Isaiah, the will of the Lord to crush him. Isaiah 53 says this, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was struck. And because of that striking at the cross, streams of living water can now flow out from your stony heart. Your life can be transformed one day at a time, not by airlifting you out of difficult situations, but by changing you in the situation. As you look to Jesus, as you know yourself, know each other, and help each other to know the Lord, so that you can experience life in the desert, water in the dry place. Jesus promised that streams of living water would come out of his followers' hearts, that we would be people of life, abundant life, who could give life to others. And the only way to know this kind of change of heart is to know the Lord the one who passed the test, the one who is faithful, the one who responds with grace every time you mess up, the one who is patient, the one who brings about the impossible, the one who gives you every reason to believe, the one who gives you every reason to know him. So will you commit to knowing each other? Will you seek to know yourself? And will you devote your mind and your attention and your heart, soul, to knowing the Lord, who to know is life eternal. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we look at these people grumbling in the wilderness and we see a mirror and we see our own reflection. Forgive us that sometimes we're so like them. We have experienced your blessing. We've experienced your rescue. And yet... Things don't go our way and we start grumbling again. We even question whether you're with us. Gracious Lord, thank you that you are slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Would you change our hearts, we pray, so that out of them come streams of living water. Father in heaven, would you send your Holy Spirit to us now at this moment to help those who are struggling, to give light to those who are in the darkness, to bring back those who are slipping away, to heal the brokenhearted, to strengthen the weak, 
to heal the sick, to give us courage, faith, and hope as we live in this wilderness for your glory. Because we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.